Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about Elder Scrolls V Skyrim and our first impressions playing this game, the X-79 on our test bench, and a new water block from Danger Den, the M6. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McCain. Last podcast, Darren and I talked about the games that we wanted to play, and one of them on the list was Skyrim. And based on Darren's description of the game, I went out and purchased it and uh, fired it up on Steam and been playing away and i want to say i have like 80 hours racked up already well that's a pretty impressive commitment to a new game i'm uh i guess excited that you liked my recommend enough to go out and get it you know and the, the funny thing about it was these games i always thought they were third person shooters and, right and i you know kind of like the the tomb raider stuff and i can never play those i always want to have a first person view and when i found out that skyrim had a first person view to it i was hooked well, you can play in the third person, but it's, at least for me, not very effective. I have also picked it up, thanks to Christmas and my uh, lovely wife, on the PlayStation 3. And I think we've talked a little bit in the past about why I play those types of games on the PlayStation 3 as opposed to the PC. But just to uh, reiterate, uh, you play games on the PC. Yeah, mostly on the PC. The only games I play on the console are racing games. I can't get the, the thumb controls to shoot and move. They seem to be backwards for me. Well, and I prefer all of my shooter games, and well, most of my hardcore gaming on the PC. I find that these games that take a huge time commitment for me, it's easier for me to play on the console so that I can juggle the family and tasks and whatever and still have that playing in the room as opposed to hiding up in my office. For 80 hours at a time. <laughs> or more. <laughs> So 80 hours is just a scratch on the surface of that. But I have not put in really much time at all since uh, Christmas. I think I'm into it eh, not much more than about three hours. In fact, I've just barely reached level six. So it's not very far into the game. And I know you're a lot further. Yeah, so level six, that would have gotten you, you know, a little bit of spoilers here, but that will get you out of the first scene. So I have uh, endured the first cutscene, which honestly makes an amazing impression with the dragon assault. And I have worked my way down the hill and cleared what I think is the first dungeon pointed out to me for the storyline and then made it to the second dragon battle, which is also kind of a spoiler. And with a little help from my friends, I was able to defeat the first dragon fight. Now, are you playing as a warrior or as a a mage? Well, you know, you can do a lot with that, which is one of the big strengths of it. And having played Oblivion primarily as a swordsman, if you will, a dual-wielding combat-oriented character, this time around I thought I'd try to play as a pure mage, which I'm finding a little bit more challenging up front. Yeah, when you're first starting out, you don't have very strong spells, so it, you know, you're only going to be dealing out about 8 points of damage. Now, as a lower-level character, the people that you're fighting don't have the same, you know, the same amount of health as later on in the game. They, they, it tends to scale based on what level you are at well one of the nice things about the game if you haven't picked it up is you have really quite a few different traits or perks if you will that you can put points into that make you stronger but one of the reasons the game for me is so dynamic is you actually gain experience and level up the skills that you use so in a lot of games where you just pick the skills and pump the points into them skyrim and well most games from bethesda really rewards you for actually using the skills if you go around and talk to the people in the cities, you can ask for training on some of those skills. Yeah, that'll give you a bit of a jump start. I found a couple of those guys, but it's not cheap. 
Well, at least when you're starting out. <laughs> oh, when you're starting out. Now, when you have a 10,000 gold racked up, <laughs> then you can go out and say, oh, well, I want some skills in smithing, or I want to have some skills in light armor. So having made it to this first, uh, well, dragon battle, if you will, I really have such a strong first impression of the game. In fact, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but my son, who is two for the folks out there, was, I think, so entranced with the wildlife because he just thought it was real. You know, he's not that old, but even just the graphics on the PlayStation 3 were just amazing. You know, my three-year-old was doing the same thing. We'd be going around and and we would uh, be walking down a path and a fox would run by. Oh, hey, there's a fox, there's a fox. <laughs> and then, of course, a wolf will come up behind you and want to attack you. And they say, get him, get him. So he was kind of rooting me on, which was kind of fun. Yeah, my first impressions of the game were graphically probably the most superior thing I've played on the PlayStation 3 to date. Maybe paralleled by the latest Uncharted, but uh, in a different style. I find myself panning around and just looking at the scenery and just trying to get a just a feel for where I'm at in the game. At a glance, it really could be real. You know, when I first started playing Doom 3, I was doing the same thing. I would get to a certain portion of the map and I would just kind of start looking around at all the textures because there was so much detail within Doom 3. Uh, unfortunately, the, the rooms were really dark, so it was very limited in what you could see. But in terms of Skyrim, the world is huge. I mean, it'll take you a half an hour to walk from you know one city to another city. As you're walking around mountains, it's continuously loading. There's no slowdown on the PC, for instance. Mm -hmm. You get to the top of a mountain. If you go into a, a dungeon or a cave... It's going to load up that dungeon level for you. But when you pull up the map, you can actually see the area that you're at superimpose over where you are in the world. Yeah, I did like that. And the fact that you could kind of zoom in and zoom out real time. So that was neat, too. Really what did it for me was the ambient noise just kind of brought the world to life, too. As, as you walk down the river, it has realistic water and waterfalls. And the effect is it's really cool. Yeah, and it supports surround sound. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have something walking up behind you, like a thief is going to try to pickpocket you or something, you can hear him walking up behind you. Or if you're walking by a stream, it's going to be on the right-hand side. It's very immersive in terms of visuals and the sound. Even the spatial sound when you're talking to folks is pretty neat. I find that I could trigger a line of dialogue while I was looking around the room, and it would follow the character just like you're walking around in real life. So that was neat, too. Did you notice how the characters interacted with you when you were talking? In some games, you know, when you're talking to somebody, if you're off to the side, they're going to stare straight ahead. But they'll actually follow you around as you're walking around them. And the animation is a step up, too, from what I've seen in Oblivion and even the latest Fallout game. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the one thing that's a little uh, anime-ish, if you will, is the size of the weapons. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it it kind of shows off the, the graphics of the weapons because they're, they're so prevalent in this game. But then you get, like, somebody that has a, a steel great sword and the thing's taller than they are. It's like, well, how are they going to swing that? But, you know, that's game dynamics. Yeah, well, and everybody likes that. I mean, that goes all the way back to the Diablo where just that appeal of finding so many different weapons and modding them and tweaking them. In fact, I spent probably 30 minutes just dinking with the smithy and learning how to build and upgrade weapons and equipment. And I was kind of drawn in by the crafting element, which is something that I normally skip. And that was a new feature that they added to Skyrim from Oblivion, as I've read. So uh, since you've played a lot further than I am, any highlights in the game that have really stuck out for you? The fact that there are so many quests that you can go on. 
is really the one thing that I like about this game. There's about five main quests in the game. Okay. You know, there's the main one where you're trying to obliviate uh, all the dragons. And that's the one that you played through the first time. That's really the first one that you're exposed to. Well, there's also a Dark Brotherhood quest line. There's one about the companions. To actually finish the, the main quest line, you have to pick a side because there's a civil war going on. So you either have to become an Imperial or a Stormcloak. But then as you're walking around these cities, you interact with people. And they might say, well, we need to have you take this dagger to such and such a place to have it rest with my dead father. And as well, you pick up the, the dagger and then you have to walk all the way across the map and give it to somebody. And then you complete the quest. But you have to go back and talk to the original person and they might give you gold or they might give you a spell or they might just give you thanks. But one of the new features in Skyrim that is related to this is that you can also get married. Oh, nice. As you are doing things for different people... If it's one of these folks that you can get married to, it opens up a different chat line or a chat sequence. So you can actually say, well, I want to get married to this person or whatever. So you get hitched. And if you have a house, you can go back to that house. Well, this person becomes a store. So as every day they go and give you like 100 gold. So you can have an infinite amount of money coming in from that person as well as what you collect from dungeons and stuff like that. So Interesting. Now, but, I know I mentioned that I was playing as a mage. And that is really focusing on the magic and, well, trying to avoid getting munched. But what are you doing for a character? I'm actually, as a warrior, but I'm doing single-handed weapons, and then I have a magical weapon in my left hand. Oh, okay. So I will go, and uh, I've done a couple of quests where I have staffs where I can go and spawn a uh, a demon character or a, a flame arntaroch, or however that's pronounced. In any event, so I can cast spells that I wouldn't normally be able to do unless I was a higher level mage. But then for some of the other spells, I can do a like a shield or I can heal myself so I can just switch back and forth while I still have my single-handed weapon. So I'm that's my main weapon and it's how I get through a lot of the stuff is hack and slash. You know, as you get hit or can't avoid blows, which is inevitable, I can go and heal myself using one of the spells that I've gotten or I can go and cast fireballs or ice balls and stuff like that. So that is really enabling me to have two weapons, but they're two different styles of weapon. Oh, so you're kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I played through the game once for just a few hours to kind of get the hang of it, and I realized that I was kind of going down the wrong track for the way I like to play. Oh, okay. So I kind of figured out that I wanted to change the way I want to do things. Well, I just went and restarted the game and then started down that track. Had I not done that, I might have just kind of had a hodgepodge of character perks and stuff like that. That's really how I settled on doing a, a kind of a half mage, half warrior. Well, I think uh, we still have a lot of time left to invest in the game, both of us, and I hope we've, uh, we've piqued your interest out there as well. So if it sounds good, go pick up Skyrim. Hey, Dennis, I noticed when we were prepping for the podcast today that you have a new machine built on the test bench. Well, that system is a Gigabyte X79 UD3 built on, the, of course, the X79 chipset and the LGA 2011 processor, or Sandy Bridge Extreme. Ooh. Now, that's the Gigabyte board, right? That is the Gigabyte board. I mean, the, the build that I have so far is a 3960X, which is the Extreme Edition super high-end six-core processor for right. the L Sandy Bridge E, and I got 16 gigs 
of RipJaws Z memory, which is the upgrade from the RipJaws X, and then a Velociraptor 150 gig, which is the normal hard drive I use for my reviews, and then there's a GTX 580 as the video card on this thing. So it looks nice, but what kind of uh, cooling setup do you have on that? Right now I have a water block on there from Danger Den. It's a new one that's yet to be released. Nice. And it's uh, connected to a hydro pump and a triple fan radiator. Sounds good. Now you mentioned that this is the UD3. Now that's the ultra durable series, right? That is the ultra durable series, and they come in different levels. And they recently changed the way that the levels were designated from the Sandy Bridge line because oh. in Sandy Bridge you had the UD3, the UD5, the UD7, and then you also had the overclocker one, which was in the X58 series. Well, for X79, they do an Ultra Durable 3, which is the one I have, and that's for the mainstream consumer. Okay. And then they have the Ultra Durable 5, which is kind of the elevated consumer. The only major difference there is that instead of just four memory slots, it has eight, which is, you know, for more memory support and stuff like that. And then the UD7 is the top of the line board for the overclocker. And it follows the same line as the X58OC, so it's got the orange and black color scheme. It has the onboard buttons for changing multiplier and base clock. And it's really just designed for benching with liquid nitrogen or phase change or, you know, whatever you have. So definitely for the hardcore folks out there. Yeah. Oh, and also the uh, UD7 is a larger board than the UD3. So it's not going to fit in your standard case. You're going to need something bigger like the Cosmos 2 or something. Now, you mentioned that that has the new Sandy Bridge E on it. Now, I have a K Edition 2600. So if I were looking at the E, what's the uh, what's the difference there? Well, you have two editions that you can choose from that have unlocked multipliers. Much like the Sandy Bridge, you have a locked edition processor, and then you have the unlocked edition, which is the K Edition. Right. Well, on Sandy Bridge E, you have... You have the 3930K, which is a 6-core processor that has an unlocked multiplier. And you have the 3960X, which is the Extreme Edition. It comes with a little bit more level 3 cache, unlocked multiplier, and higher base clock. But the Sandy Bridge, I know, had some really, well, almost old-school overclocking tricks to it. How do you uh, work with the Sandy Bridge E? Much in the same way that you did with Sandy Bridge. You know, you're still tied... Well, Intel tied the PCI Express bus to the base clock. So the default is 100 megahertz, and you might be able to go up to 105 based on what kind of board you have if it can handle changes in the PCI Express speed. But with the Sandy Bridge E, they've introduced what they call a base clock multiplier, which allows you to kind of get back into the way that you overclock on the Gulf Town where you have a raw base clock. So you could go and set to 140 megahertz, and then it'll be times your multiplier, and that would be your, your speed. Well, with Sandy Bridge E, you can go up to like 105, and then you can add a multiplier of 1.25. That gives you a resulting base clock, which is somewhere in the order of 130 megahertz. Multiply that by your processor multiplier. That gives you your processor speed, and then you have your system clock, which controls memory. So there's a lot of different multipliers in there. They just kind of added one more to the mix to make it seem like you can overclock a lot more. Initial testing kind of proved that base clock doesn't have the same impact on Sandy Bridge E as it did with the Halem or Gulf Town. Now, I know that the uh, Sandy Bridge E is already appearing out on some of the major overclocking sites. 
So uh, what are we looking at as sort of a theoretical ceiling? It's a lot less than Sandy Bridge, believe it or not. Oh. It's around 5.4, 5.5 gigahertz, and that's under liquid nitrogen. I mean, this thing is also a 130-watt processor, a lot like Gulftown was. Okay. Six cores, hyper-threaded. It's going to produce a lot of heat. 1.7 volts will kill the processor based on what I've been reading so far. So, you know, you're kind of voltage limited. But, you know, you're pumping in 1.6 volts into a 130-watt processor. It's going to be 250, almost 300 watts before you're done. Yeah, you're going to have to have a lot of cooling for that. How soon will we see something on the site? I hope in the next couple of months. So next podcast. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I may have to take another look at a Sandy Bridge E myself. You know, this is going to be my new main system, that's for sure. Now, Dennis, in the last segment, we talked quite a bit about the new build that's on the test bench. But I wanted to uh, really focus on the water cooling setup that you've got there. Uh, I know that you've got access to a lot of different cooling solutions here, so I thought it might be nice to give our listeners an idea of what you've got here and some of the decisions behind those choices. All right, so what would you like to know? Well, why don't you walk us through the setup? Well, this is a water cooling setup. I got a triple fan radiator, which is 320 millimeter fans. It's an old radiator from an Ace Tech build that I've reviewed a long time ago, and I just, you know, keep this stuff around and keep using it. Well, and we've seen that radiator in a lot of builds, so it's definitely getting its money's worth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then I got a Hydroar L35 pump. It's a 120-volt pump, you know, old-school pump. You know, a lot of the new ones nowadays are all 12-volt and stuff like that, but I kind of like the classics. Right. And then, you know, just a, a basic res to, to fill and bleed from. The system has kind of a combination of hoses because to use that triple fan radiator, I have to have... I have to have three agent hose coming out of the radiator, but then the blocks and the pump and whatnot are all half-inch barbs. Now, I see that. Does that introduce any disadvantages? It does restrict a little bit of flow, but I haven't noticed any differences in cooling in terms of, like, capacity or anything like that. Because, let's face it, that triple fan radiator, when it's run full blast, it's going to keep anything I put on there cold. Right. And then for the water block, I'm using a new Danger Den M6 block. Now, if you haven't heard that name before, it's because this is a brand new block from Danger Den, and I was lucky enough to be one of the beta testers, being a previous customer and also a lucky contestant. Now, that's a nice-looking water block in there, but it, it's big, and uh, well, at least on the surface, it looks like uh, chrome and brass is the build. Is that right? <laughs> it's uh, nickel-plated brass, and as we've known from the past of you know previous Danger Den things, they usually do use a clear top or they use a brass top. Okay, yeah. And the difference is, you know, some of it is capacity, some of it's preference, some of it's looks. Uh, for me, it's, you know, the first time I've ever used a brass top, but that was, uh, you know, what they had available, and it really looks nice. It's nice and shiny and smooth, and it's really heavy for a block because it's all brass. Now, it's large and all metal, so are there advantages, disadvantages to that type of build? For a large block, it will cool a lot better, obviously, because you're going to have more surface area. And for the LGA 2011, you know, this is a big processor. It's about 20% larger than the 1366, which was the previous enthusiast chip. And to cool that amount of surface area, you're going to have to have a larger block. Now, granted, a, a TDX will fit on there and it will keep it cool. It's not going to do a very good job 
you know, because this is a small teardrop block, the TDX. And the M6 is going to be able to handle a lot more capacity because it's larger. And the internals have been changed. So what is different about the internals between the M6 and the TDX? Well, the TDX is what they call a pin grid. So it, the water's going to be flowing over this grid of columns of copper, and that's how it's going to cool. There's not really a lot of surface area there. It's more than previous blocks, but not so much. With the M6, they went to a micro-skiving technique. And as you may remember from the air cooling days, you know, you had the thin fin design, and that was the one that produced the most performance. And there was two different designs. There was one that was a bonded fin, which mm -hmm. was kind of welded two pieces of copper together, kind of a brazing process. And then there was a skiving process, which was a solid chunk of metal. And they used like a knife to go and cut these fins into the copper and flip them up and make fins out of it. Right. Well, the M6 uses that micro skiving technique, really, really thin copper fins. So it's going to be in a horizontal configuration. Water comes in through the center, out the, the sides. End result is basically you have more surface area from the thin fins and it's going to be over a large surface area, so it's going to be able to absorb as much heat as possible before it goes out the exit. So it sounds like a lot of performance advantages, especially over the pin. Oh, definitely. You know, and it's really just a matter of surface area. You know, one of the old blocks that I reviewed from Thermalright, you know, when they did one water block way back when, <laughs> they did a micro pin configuration, which is really, it's a lot like a micro fin, like what the M6 is, but this was really, really small, smaller than a needle, pins of copper into the copper base and the difference there was that there was more surface area uh, the drawback was you know a higher resistance so you didn't have as much water flow over it that was really the reason i bought that l35 was for that one block at the time i had a really weak pump well it wasn't pushing any water through it i wasn't getting any cooling performance so i had to upgrade the pump to get water to go through this block with the M6, you don't necessarily have to have that because it's going to flow pretty well and still have a pretty sizable amount of surface area to capture heat from. Well, it sounds like a lot of performance advantages, but there must be disadvantages? The biggest disadvantage is one, weight. You know, if you're worried about flexing your board or something like that, you know, this isn't going to be the right block. Safety aside, I think it's going to be fine based on the mounting, which we can talk about that in a moment. And one of the other disadvantages is if you want a really high flow system, it's going to be a little bit restrictive because of the the director plate that goes in between the, the barbs and the base. You know, and that's where it takes the water from one barb to move it over to the center of the block and then back out. So we talked a little bit about the chiller, but with a full block, are you going to get condensation or frost buildup? If you're going to do sub-zero cooling with this block, which is, you know, the reason that you have a full metal block, so you're going to want to insulate that a little bit or put down a whole bunch of paper towels because, you know, once the system heats up, because you're not going to be able to keep that sub-zero temperature for very long, once the system heats up, it's going to melt that and it's going to get water everywhere. So it sounds like your first impressions are very favorable. How far are you going to push it? You know, I'm going to take this block and I'm going to do the chilling on it. You know, once I get the... The base review done, I'll bring it out to the garage, hook it up to the water chiller, and see what I can do with it. I see that you've got the block mounted with it looks like some some pretty good-sized brass screws, but you also have, it looks like some black ones on the bench. Yeah, the, the brass screws were pre-production, and it was kind of testing out a new style. One of the biggest problems with the previous way that you would mount a Danger Den water block is you'd have this piece of all thread that would mount directly to the motherboard, then you had a spring and then a little brass knurled nut that held everything in place. Right. Well, there was no way to 
actively set the spring tension. And a lot of people would over tighten them or not tighten them enough. Well, with these nuts, the spring will fit inside of a plastic jacket. And then as you're tightening it down, once the nut hits the block, you have the proper spring tension. So when it actually stops on the block, that's when you stop screwing it down. Oh, well, that makes sense. And it keeps you from uh, damaging your motherboard or, you know, tweaking your mountings. And that's actually pretty important on the X79 due to how the heat sinks are mounted nowadays. So now that you've had a chance to play with this, what kind of numbers are you seeing? Well, as I mentioned before, I try to keep the lab at around 22 degrees Celsius. Right. My initial testing was a 32 degree centigrade idle temperature and a 47 degree load temperature at around 200 plus watts, 210, 220, somewhere around that. So that's about, what, 15 degrees delta from load to, to idle? That's rivaling a lot of the better blocks that I've already tested with a less heat load. So it's going to be able to handle the capacity, it's be able to handle the heat, and I think it's going to be a great overclocker. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have any questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. To stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane, please subscribe to our RSS, now available on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2012. Thanks for listening.